Well, welcome to MSU Today. I'm Bill Beekman, Vice President and Athletic Director. And our uh, guest on the program today is uh, Dr. Randy Rash, who is the Dean of Michigan State University's College of Nursing. Uh, welcome to the program, Randy. Thanks, Bill. Good to be here. So tell us about, you know, to me, it's uh, having worked a little bit with the College of Nursing uh, in, in some of my past roles, it seems as though the profession of nursing you know, really has evolved over the years. And uh, as, sort of as we think about the, the way that care is provided and, uh, and, and the continuum of care that you see from uh, uh, at, at various points in the healthcare system. So how, has, how has, has the nursing profession evolved over the last uh, number of years? And, and what, do you, what do you see as the future of the profession? So I think the basics are pretty much the same, but I think one of the things that's happened in the pandemic is that more people are much more aware of what nursing is about. And I say that, um, I think one thing when people hear nursing, what they hear or what they visualize is what they see nurses doing. You know, getting patients up, medications, baths, all of those things while you're in the hospital. But I think what's happened in the pandemic is people are beginning to hear what nurses have to know and how they have to think. But I think the other thing is, is as you just said, Bill, is the continuum across the health, um, you know, inpatient, outpatient. And so uh, there, and I would say that what's gonna happen is that the outpatient part outside of hospitals is gonna grow. So probably most of our listeners have had uh, family members or they themselves have been in the hospital and they've been there a couple of days and then they're released. And, uh, you know, years ago, you would have been there a week or so and had opportunity to really get prepared to be released. And so where we're moving now is for nurses really to be able to say um, this patient, in, as far as nursing is concerned, isn't ready to go. Or if you're getting ready to send them home, we need to be connecting to make sure that nursing care is provided at home or so that they and their family members know what to do and can provide that care as well. And that has an impact on patients, of course, because who wants to turn around and get readmitted to the hospital, right? So the outcomes are a big piece. What people don't realize is that if you are returned, if you return to the hospital within a certain amount of time, it's big money because the hospital loses money and they're penalized for it. So the strength of nursing, I think, is beginning to be what is the con continuum of care that nurses provide? And whether it's a nurse in the hospital that's providing it when you leave home, or they have connections and can refer you for care once you go home, or they are able to teach you what you need to do, has a huge impact. So I think more and more people are experiencing when that doesn't happen and experiencing when it happens. And, and we are beginning to get a better sense of what it is that nurses do. I will say that that's been true for years because I began my uh, career, I, you know, I worked in the hospital for maybe eight months and then I went to work as a public health nurse in Benton Harbor, Michigan. And that happened to be a combined agency. It was a great experience. So it was a public health nurse but we were also home health nurses, four for Benton Harbor, four for the rest of the county. And we were divided into districts. So by your uh, address, that's the nurse you got. 
And so I did public health and home health in the same area. We would admit people to home health and when they were discharged from home health, we would keep following them as public health nurses. So that was years ago. I think that that's beginning to be strengthened and, and more and more nurses in the future is that more and more of our education has to emphasize that continuity of care. Because think about it, if you're working on a hospital floor or working in an inpatient unit, there are other nurses around you that you can call on. But if you're working at homes and going from home to home, it's you. So it much more emphasizes the independence. And most nurses know that, know the information and know the care that they need to provide. But if you haven't experienced it, you don't really know that you know it. So we need to put that more in our education now. So it seems as though the, um, when we think about, uh, and, and, and maybe it's, so, so may, maybe this is just my personal experience that's coming out, but, uh, but, but as our parents age and as, as the population ages, it, then it seems as though healthcare takes a, a little bit of a shift towards uh, an, an, an older population. And, and my sense is that, you know, obviously people want to stay in their homes and apartments as, as long as they can. And probably from a healthcare perspective, that's the most efficient way to, uh, to provide them with care. I mean, a hospital bed being you know, really, really expensive um, and even a, an intermediary bed you know, not being inexpensive. So how has, um, how has, has healthcare you know, shifted as our population has aged? And, and what do you think the impact of the pandemic will be on that sort of shift in healthcare? So I think it's, um, you know, the population is aging faster than, as I say, the youngins are coming along to take care of us. And so that, that's been going on for a while. I think that healthcare has not done a very good job of, of dealing with that. So our healthcare, uh, you know, in general is, is geared towards acute care, not chronic care. And one of the things we've always learned in nursing is outcomes. Not, not just the financials, we're beginning to pay attention to that, but nursing has always been focused on improving outcomes. So some of what you just said, if you think about it, you're more comfortable at home, right? Yep. So why shouldn't we uh, be working for you to stay at home longer? And I think one of the things I would say is the first thing is that usually when we think of an aging population, we're thinking of people who are maybe close to the end of their lives, and I'm talking like months or so, but most people age pretty successfully. And if we can have the support out there, um, they can remain at home. And I think one of the things I would say about nursing care then is, like I said, in acute care, you see nurses focusing on certain things, but really what nurses are about is learning who you are, who your family is, how do you live, and how do you maintain that lifestyle? How do you remain successfully at home? Even when you're able to get up and drive and all of those things. Say you're diabetic and you need to be uh, watching your, what you eat and exercise and all of that. What a good nurse does is learns what it is that you eat and helps you, you know, that comfort food and how to help you eat that comfort food, which is a quality of life thing, right? If you can't eat what you enjoy, What's the point of living? And I'm kidding, but but really, in a way, I'm not. For some but of us, so, not by much, yeah. Yeah. So how do you eat what you normally eat? 
And how do you help people learn to prepare the food and eat it in a way that's gonna be healthy? And, and most nurses can do that. And if it gets really tricky, we can always refer to our colleagues who are dietitians and nutritionists and all of those who can really get down to the nitty gritty, gritty if that's needed. So the main thing is how to be at home healthy. If you have chronic conditions and illnesses, how do you adapt to that in a way that you can be as healthy as you possibly can? And I think the other thing that we have got to pay attention to is that, and this is a question that I ask students all the time, um, but if you're born, one of the things we know is you're gonna die. But we have been socialized to think of, a death, of death as a catastrophe. And certainly sometimes death is a catastrophe, but the thing we know is we're gonna die. So we think of it as something not normal, when it's a natural part of living. So the thing I always say to students is if you have a patient who is within two hours of dying, can they be healthy? And from a nursing perspective, the answer is yes, of course they can. Now the circumstances is how do you help them be as healthy as they can when they're dying? And some of that's existential and spiritual and all of that but really helping family and patients accept that that's what's going on. And, and most people, you know, when, you're, when they know that and they're supported for it, you, you see people die peacefully, that sort of thing. So managing physical discomfort is a part of that as well. But, but I've, you know, I'm just taking you from birth to death. When I was a public health nurse, we also cared for babies who were in danger of not thriving because of whatever their condition, it might be their condition or it just might be that their mother or their parents taking care of them didn't know what it was that they needed to help this baby grow and develop. And so we used to have, we used to sign those babies up for home health. And um, we went in and helped mothers learn how to feed them, how to clothe them, how to do all those sorts of things so that you got, you know, you had babies who were growing and developing very well. I think the other key piece about nursing is, I was just telling this to our university attorney and another attorney, but I always, always said to students, a good nurse is like a good lawyer. And then they all look at me like I've lost my mind. <laughs> <laughs> but then I say, what does a good lawyer do? A good lawyer can tell you what your legal situation and circumstances are. And then they tell you your options in terms of making the decision about what you need to do legally. And when you make the stupid decision, they don't abandon you. And so my point in nursing is you meet patients and families where they are. And so you help them think about their opportunities for health promotion, health maintenance, how to maintain their, you know, maintain their lifestyle with a chronic disease. And you tell them the pros and cons of all the choices they can make. And then if they don't make the best decision, you don't abandon them. You stay them and support them. So we've all heard about healthcare providers firing patients. That should not happen unless it's some extreme thing that's dangerous to the, to the uh, provider. You don't fire people, you meet them where they are and where they live and you help them do the best they can and all that while you help them to know better. As Maya Angelou said, when you know better, you do better. 
So the role of a good health provider and the role of a nurse is to help you do that. When you make this decision, you think, okay, that one's stupid, but you don't say that, but you might say, you know, that's not the best decision. Here's why, but if that's what you're gonna do, let's figure out how we are gonna do it. And there are lots of reasons that people make those decisions. And that's mm -hmm. why you have to meet them where they are. It's because of their living circumstances, you know, often or the way they're thinking or whatever, it's that what you're telling them just doesn't seem possible or seems overwhelming. So you help them to make the best decision they can under their circumstances and you support them, whether they're in a hospital, whether they're at home, uh, you do that. And the other thing you do is you help the other healthcare providers that you work with know that so that they can begin to adapt what they're trying to do with these patients as well. So in the, in the context of the pandemic, you know, we've all been faced with a lot of decisions. Um, yeah. You know, decisions to uh, to social distance or, or physical distance, um, to try and stay home and, and sort of generally stay away from folks when we go out to wear a mask, um, all those kinds of things. And you see in society different, you know, the pandemic to me is, has sort of been fascinating in that everybody has an, a perspective, everybody has an opinion everybody has sort of come to it a little bit differently. And, and as you say, it's, um, you know, it, it sort of comes to people you know, where they are and, uh, and everybody's perspective, everybody's worldview is, is maybe a little bit different. And so I, was, I just happened to be uh, looking earlier today that uh, uh, Michigan's uh, uh, rate of, of vaccination for um, uh, one or more shots was at a 49 point something, just shy of 50%, which kind of surprised me. I, I would have assumed it would, it would have been higher given the, uh, uh, the point where, where, where seemingly uh, the, the supply uh, is exceeding the demand, where, where you can, it, it's relatively easy to, to get a shot now. Yep. What would you say to folks that are, uh, uh, that are, that are in that 50% that are, uh, that haven't gotten a shot yet? I would say it's your health. The first thing to remember, it's your health. So you're talking to somebody who really early in my career was a public health nurse. And so one of the things, you know, most people who have children know that their children need to be immunized. And if they're not immunized, it's, it, it becomes a problem when they go to school. So as a public health nurse back in the day, every year about August, we would be there would just be this influx of kids to be immunized because they were going to have problems going to school. And what you would recognize out of that is that there were children who should have been immunized long before that because they start those when you're a baby at about two months. And so there's this whole, I think there's a couple of things. One is the conception, the idea that getting a shot like a vaccine is going to prevent an illness. And you know, it's that just connection to that, that it's hard to, for some people to think that, but there's also a mistrust. So there are a lot of things that we knew before the COVID-19 vaccine came up. One is this false rumor that getting your child immunized is gonna increase their risk of autism, which was a lie. And it was a, something that got published that was immediately debunked. 
but you know, in, in the African-American community and the communities of color and other, uh, um, and not just communities of color, but uh, folks just don't get their flu vaccine every year. And they'll say things to you like, well, I know somebody who got the flu vaccine and then they got sick. Well, they probably weren't protected by the flu vaccine. You know, they got, it's like, okay, they got sick, but was it, when did they get sick? And then it's understanding how all of that works. And I think the other piece that we've had is that we've had misinformation and let's not get into that and why, but we've had misinformation. And then the other thing is that there, part of that misinformation is that this vaccine, uh, the science behind it seems new, although the science behind it is, is older than that, but um, it has not been used for vaccines before. The people hear all of that. And I have to say, I'm really disappointed in health professionals physicians and nurses who perpetuate this as well, who should know better. But um, so I think there's a lot of question about, you know, there's a misunderstanding about immunizations in the first place in, in different parts of the population. And so there was already that and a mistrust. And then when something new comes along, what we have is people not getting access to the information to say, this is safe, and it can protect you. And, and you know, we're really at, we're doing 50%, about 50% isn't, isn't great. We want to be up 80, 90% of, of immunization because when that happens, then you have the population being protected. If you're immunized, you're protected. But if half the population isn't protected, then it means that those folks are still at risk. So the idea by, behind, and I'm gonna throw this out and I shouldn't, but, but, but people should hear it. Herd immunity means that this percent of the population is immunized, is protected. And the safest way to get that is to get the vaccine, right? There is this, yeah, herd immunity can happen if a certain number of the population gets sick. But we've had what? Three, three million, six million people die. Is that how you get to herd immunity? No, you get to it the safest way. So there are two things is it's to get immunized yourself for your own personal protection, but it is a public health issue. So you also get immunized so that your fellow citizens and residents of this country are also protected. So do you have a sense of, um, uh, so I, I got the vaccine um, at both doses and uh, I was, uh, I, I probably didn't want to be the first person, but I was pretty comfortable being like the 20 millionth person. Um, right. I, I figured by then it was, uh, you know, something was either going to go wrong or it wasn't and I was in a really safe place. And so now that I've got it, you know, I think the, the, as I understand it, it it's, uh, it, medicine suggests that it will last for some period of time, but it, it may be the case that, that we all need to get, get another one. Yeah. And so do, do you have a sense of uh, you know, where, where the medicine is at in terms of uh, thinking that through, or, uh, or do we not really know that yet? I don't think we, I don't think we really know that, but I want to say something. This is misinformation again, when people say somebody got the vaccine and then they died or whatever. 
So what we know by looking at those is that it is maybe one of the safest things that you can do. And what people don't realize is every time you get any kind of healthcare um, intervention, there's a risk, right? Um, treatment for cancer is about killing cancer cells. But when you, when you do that, what used to happen is you killed safe cells, uh, good cells too. The, the progress that we're making is that it's much, it's more and more we're able to target those cells, right? There's always a risk. So there is a risk with vaccines, but they're one of the safest things that you can do when everybody's on medications and stuff, there's a risk, but they don't think about it. Yeah. And it's because you don't die right away from it, but there's always a risk. So let me go back to the question you answered. And um, I suspect, but I don't know, but everything, you know, I'm not an expert in the area, but thinking public health wise, my guess, and I'm, it's a guess because we don't know, my guess is that we're going to end up having to get um, vaccines again. So what we know now is the vaccine we have now for Texas, we know that the UK variant, right, was something new, but it was protective. We now know that the Delta variant, which is coming out of India, and now is the, the fastest um, um, infection in, in the UK and is coming here. I think we're at about 10% here. But my understanding is that that infection rate doubles every two or three weeks. So we know the Delta variant is going to, to double. We also know from what I you know, look at and listen to and read, we also know that the vaccine we have right now protects against the variant, but it's much more contagious. This variant is, is much more contagious. So that around 50% of the population that's not immunized is not going to be protected, and they're more likely to catch it because it's even more infectious than what we had uh, about a year ago. So I suspect that this is going to happen. Like I said, I'm guessing, I'm guessing, I'm guessing. But this, this virus changes enough that I think we're going to end up with a variant where we're going to need another vaccine. So if you think about the flu, the reason we get, and, and I, I, I would have thought that this was pretty well known, but I, when I talk to people, they go, oh yeah, we sort of know that, but I still talk to enough people who don't know it. So we get the flu, uh, we have to do a flu vaccine every year because the science predicts which flu virus is going to be infectious in the next year. And so the vaccine is a combination of what they predict that flu variant is gonna be. And so they're pretty much right, right? So we get immunized against the flu and we're usually protected. If they miss that one that they didn't predict is more virulent than the others, then we might be at risk for more people getting the flu. So I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that what we're gonna be doing is monitoring, testing, and all of those things that we should have been doing in our public health system anyway. But I think we're gonna be at a point where we're highly vigilant to what are the variants and does the current vaccine address it? And do we need a new one to cover the new, the new variant? And essentially that's what's happening with the flu. The vaccine that we got have with the flu isn't produced in the same way, 
but the science and the process and the practice is very similar in terms of protecting the population. So, you know, people, I just heard all kinds of stuff when I was, you know, I would listen to people about free speech and all of this kind of stuff. Public health is about the protection of the population. So back when Typhoid Mary was running around rampant, the, the public health initiative was to keep Mary secluded and separated from everybody else. That's what that practice is about. It's not an abrogation of freedom. It's about protecting your health and the health of every citizen and resident in this country, including people who come to visit and people who come to leave, to, who leave. And I think um, the other thing we have to pay attention to is that I just, I just over a year ago, I uh, guest edited a, a special edition of um, Nursing Clinics of North America, the special edition. Before this, before coronavirus hit, that special edition was on infectious diseases. Oh, and wow. the last, the last um, issue, the last, not issue, but the last article in there was about emerging infectious diseases because we live in a world population. Everybody flies everywhere and people come here. And so what happens is we are sometimes exposed to things that we weren't exposed to. When the new world first happened, the natives that lived here died of things that the Europeans would get over in no time at all because they'd never been exposed to it. But, but, the, but I wrote an intro to it and it, I can't remember, but it was something about ancient diseases and new frontiers or something. And when you, when you look at the Bible or old literature from that time, we didn't know what infectious disease was. We based it on looking at somebody and they had sores or whatever, and it just looked not good and we thought they had diseases. You know, it might have been a bad case of acne, which is not infectious, but that's how it was viewed. And that's why you read all those things in the Bible and other literature about how it's handled. About Florence Nightingale's time, we discovered germ theory and began to get a real sense of how germs, viruses, and bacteria can infect us. What we know now, I think this was just in, it's been a while, but in Science Magazine, there was, I think, a story about melting ice. And it's about prehistoric ice melting that has prehistoric bacteria and viruses in it, as I recall. And I'm trying to remember, but I think what I read said that they were alive from wow. thousands, millions of years ago. Amazing. But my point is we should always be vigilant. This pandemic hit. But if, you know, there was a joke going around on, the, on Facebook, my sister sent this to me that said, every time there was an election, there was a new infectious disease. Okay, that's kind of funny. Zika, Ebola, you know, every year there'd be something. But the truth is there's gonna be something. And our system was in place to catch it before it happened. Ebola, Ebola could have been a mess, right? And that was, that was actually, that was nurses who were saying, something's going on here, something's going on here. No one believed them. And then finally somebody did. But those are all examples of things that could have gotten really out of hand. So our public health system is really built to try to catch these things beforehand. And it is for the protection of all of us. You know, we don't want the United States citizenry and people who are here disappearing because some disease wasn't handled <laughs> when it could have been. So 
Did I answer your question? <laughs> Absolutely. And one of the, one of the um, reasons I, I always enjoy our conversations is that your, your passion for what you do absolutely you know, c- comes through. And so as the, the last question, um, what, uh, you know, what inspired you to become a nurse? What, what caused you to go into this profession? Well, it's funny. We sort of started out with this and I'm going to blame my father if I get teary eyed. So out of my family, my brother, my sister, and my mother, my father was the one that cried easily. And I do as well. So I always thought that I was going to be a physician and I went to Andrews University Academy, which is also where I went to college. And our guidance counselor was a nurse. He was a nurse anesthetist. So I said to him, if I become a nurse, uh, can I go on to medical school? He said, yeah, you just have to take, take the prerequisites for medical school. So I started nursing, which happened in my sophomore year. I didn't know what nursing was until I started it. And as I went along, I thought, you know, I like this. I, I'll just stay doing this. And the other thing that happened for me then was I liked working in the hospitals. I liked providing that care. The problem was they never had enough nurses to do what I had learned to do. And I was able to do that by going into the community. I, I have been, I was just telling Barb Gibbon, who's our distinguished university professor retired. I said to her, you know, I look at my colleagues during this pandemic and all I can say is I'm so grateful that I made the decision to become a nurse and to see what our colleagues are doing and what all of that, I'm just proud to stand beside them even if it's in the role of being a Dean and not out there actually doing it. But I, I became a nurse because I was exposed to healthcare early and exposed to what nurses do early because I was involved in it. And when I finished, decided I'm not gonna go to medical school, I'll do this. So, you know, I went back to school a couple of times and, and, and I'm at this point. But I can tell you the other thing that we're seeing is that because in this past year, while we've heard nurses talk about negative experiences, so many of them have talked about what they're doing with patients, how they're thinking about it, all of that, that it is inspiring another whole generation to think, I want to do that. So we're seeing students graduating from high school coming to MSU. Our application rates for those students are up by 38%. Wow. We also have a program for those individuals who have a bachelor or higher degree in another field. Um, they can come back and become a BSN prepared nurse. Along with the 38%, those people who have a bachelor's degree or higher, that application rate has gone up by 28%. And people have said to me, oh, is that the Fauci effect? And I go, well, Fauci is about medicine. And I think that that's attracted a whole cadre of people to think medical school. And I do think it has attracted some people to think nursing. But I think what we are hearing from the people who've applied, what our folks are hearing when they talk to them, they're applying because they begin to understand what nursing is about because they hear it in the news all the time. And and they go, oh, I want to do that. But I think the other thing that's happening, and um, this has to do with you hearing the reports about people 
the the statistics are are showing that people are about to quit their jobs. I think it's like I forget, I can't remember the percentage, but it's unprecedented the number of people that are planning to quit quit their jobs in the next six months or so. All of them aren't going to go into nursing, but that second group that have a bachelor's degree or higher, one of the things is they made a decision to do what they're doing now, but all of a sudden they're thinking, you know, I want to do something that I feel is more meaningful for me. Not to say that they weren't doing something meaningful, but I think this whole uh, people dying and all of that makes you stop and think, what am I doing in life? You know, we're going to have people with the MBA going back to art school to be artists. <laughs> we're going to have people deciding, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a social worker. And a certain group of them are deciding, I'm going to be a nurse because I hear what that is. And that's what I want to do. So I was inspired, I think, because I grew up in a religious tradition that um, I grew up in a religious tradition that taught us what our whatever discipline we were learning, but they also socialized us to think, no matter what your ambition is, your purpose is here to serve. And so I grew up with that background, which is probably how I got attracted to healthcare. And then after getting attracted to healthcare, you know, a series of events leads you to the point it was, oh, I'll be a nurse. And once I did it, it was the right decision for me. And I look back over many years now, and I'm just incredibly grateful that I made that decision and incredibly grateful that I've had the opportunity to serve both patients personally, one-on-one. I don't think you know that when I left Michigan, I went to Vanderbilt University and became a family nurse practitioner and went to work in the Tennessee Department of Correction, where I stayed for about six years, ended up in the central office where two nurses, both family nurse practitioners, I was one of them, developed a system of health care for the Tennessee Department of Correction. And when the rest of the department was in worse trouble with the federal court system and health services was released, Jamie Brody and I looked at each other and went, yep, time to go. And off I went for the PhD. But, um, but it has been a life of services at different levels. And that, I will say the other thing, because I think this is true of other people who don't necessarily go into nursing. They might go into business. They might go into law. They might go into English or whatever. But the other thing that people, I think, who think of it as service, um, have faith in their fellow human beings. And for the most part, and, and I, would, I wouldn't have been able to do public health, I wouldn't have been able to work in the Department of Correction for those years if I didn't have basic faith in human beings. And that was both the inmates and the correctional officers that work there. People are basically good. Our citizens, the people who live in this country with us are basically pretty good. We need to remember it. We may not think the way they do. We may not agree with everything, but we have to remember that all of us are basically people of goodwill. And when you hear, when you hear people talk and they're being interviewed, people on the street or whatever, yeah, you hear some mess, but thoughtful people, what you hear is they believe the best of all of us. And that's the way we go forward. In this pandemic, and any kind of health thing. And health, you know, health is more than just what we think of health. 
It is all those determinants of health, education, work, all of those kinds of things. And we have to just call ourselves to our better nature. So I'm on a preaching thing now. <laughs> but, but, um, but that's how I guess I would want to end this. That's how I got into nursing. Others might not get into nursing, but whatever we get into, we have to remember to have faith in our fellow human beings and how is it that we can serve each other. Well, Randy, thanks so much. It's, uh, it's been a joy having you on the program. Uh, and we're, uh, we're joined today uh, on MSU Today by uh, Dr. Randy Rash, Dean of the College of Nursing at Michigan State University. And uh, unfortunately, our, our time is up. We've just really scratched the surface of, uh, of what the College of Nursing has to offer. We didn't get a chance to talk about research. Uh, and Dr. Given, you mentioned, is, uh, is one, of, one of my favorite folks uh, from the college. And so we will have to have you back again to, uh, to explore so much of, of what you do as dean. But thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. And I look forward to coming back because you're right. Uh, we need to talk about research. We need to talk about advanced practice and, and, and nursing service. I've been privileged to serve on three task forces with the governor that the governor has appointed to me too. So it's another example of what nursing can do. So I look forward to coming back and thank you guys for having me here today. Thanks so much, Randy. Take care, Bill.